Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by the reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today we're speaking with Akweki Amezi about their new novel, The Death of Vivek Oji, which I, you know, obviously I'm going to be into almost any novel that's about queer folks and coming to identity and secrets. But mm. <laughs> this one, I I just really liked in terms of how it framed a different kind of experience of queerness for me, like really beyond Western frameworks for gender and sexuality and also thinking about queer family and generational change in ways that were like familiar, but also kind of refreshingly different. I agree. This is somewhat unrelated to your observation, but I recently have found that one of the genres that I really can pay attention to during quarantine is um, mystery novels. And Mm. so luckily for me, this actually, it's a mystery novel in a sort of, in a new way, let's say, in that there is there is a death that happens, obviously, as a reader could probably tell from the title. And the book does dedicate itself to finding out what happened to the, the character. So it's this book about queerness and secrets and, and identity and, and gossip. And it's also like a genre work in a way. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get into it? Yes, let's do it. excited to have Akweke Amezi on the line with us today. Akweke is the author of Pet, a YA novel that was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and a National Book Award in 2019, as well as Freshwater, an autobiographical novel published in 2018 and which is currently in development for TV adaptation on FX. Freshwater was published to great critical acclaim and was also longlisted and shortlisted for a number of prizes. Akweke joins us today to talk about their latest novel, the Death of Vivek Oji, which centers on the experience of the title character, a young gender nonconforming person coming to understand and embrace themselves shortly before their mysterious death. The novel also centers around their family and friends who try to understand their society, traditions, and themselves. Told from multiple perspectives, the death of Vivek Oji asks questions about the meaning of family, queerness, cultural distance, and our capacity for intimacy. Akweke was born in Umu Ahia and raised in Aba, Nigeria. They now live in the United States. Welcome to the show, Akweke. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book. It's an exciting yeah. day. It's like book three is real today, so I'm kind of taking it all in. <laughs> it's real. It's real. It exists. I held it in, well, I held it digitally in my hands, but <laughs> I did hold it in my hands. <laughs> One of the ways that I want to open the conversation up is to just think about or ask you about how you came to the idea for this particular novel and kind of what you were working through in the novel. A couple of different threads actually led me to this book. I had just finished writing Freshwater and Mm -hmm. I was trying to challenge myself with the next work because it's kind of hard to do structurally the things that I did in Freshwater and then not be bored with whatever comes next. I'm not very interested in writing very linear stories. I think Pets was the first time I was able to do that. And I was so proud of myself because I was like, wow, you know, it's one narrator and the book moves in 
chronological order. It's living on the edge, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and with Vivek, I was trying to figure out ways to keep myself interested in the book because I can't, I'm a Gemini. I can't finish writing something if I get bored halfway. It just won't work. So I That also it. must explain why gossip is at like the center of this novel. <laughs> <laughs> Shots at Gemini's, I see. That's cool. Gemini's we're love their gossip. Yeah. <laughs> we're used to it. So I just finished reading Garcia Marquez's The Chronicle of the Dead Foretold. And I was like, ooh, you killed your protagonist in the beginning of the book and you still had a book. Fascinating. I want to see if mm. I can do that. And I also wanted to write about the community I grew up in. So the Niger Wives are a real organization. In Nigeria, they were founded in the early 70s. My mom is a member, and mm. I grew up with aunties like Vivek has. They were a huge part of my childhood, and it was a bit surreal looking back at it because you have all these women from all over the world. Like the school I went to from when I was two years old to when I graduated at 16 was run by a Black woman educator from Ohio. Mm. And we had this weird like little cultural bubble going on. And meanwhile, the entire town is like burning outside with riots and violence. Mm. And we're here having like fancy dress Easter parties because our mothers made this effort to try and give us a certain kind of wholesome childhood as far as they could, despite everything that was going on. And I just thought that it was interesting. I was like, oh, this will make an interesting story. So let me write a story in this. The non-linearity of it, I found, normally I can find that sort of thing, like grading as a reader, or it's like, oh my God, now I have to, I mean, this makes me sound lazy, which I'm not, but it's like, <laughs> well, you know, now I've got to piece all this together. You know, it's like reading Nabokov, right? Okay, now let me, here's my notebook, keeping track of everything. But actually, I found that it felt almost seamless. Like, obviously, the story is nonlinear, but there's a way that you manage to kind of sew everything together such that anytime I had a question, it kind of immediately brings me into that narrative thread. It must have been very difficult to structure so that it was nonlinear, but didn't feel so disruptive. It wasn't so much the nonlinear part that was difficult for me, because that's how my brain works naturally mm. is nonlinear. It's why Freshwater is the way it is. And it's why mm -hmm. Pet was difficult to write because it wasn't. Mm. And so it's intuitive for me when I write. What was difficult was writing backwards in the sense that I'm writing and I know things that the reader doesn't know. I see. Mm -hmm. And that was really the challenge for me is like, I felt like I was writing, but I had to keep a secret <laughs> until the end of the book. And structuring that was challenging because I had to make sure that I wasn't like foreshadowing too much. And then my little sister pissed me off because she was reading the manuscript and she guessed the ending like a third <laughs> of the way in. And I was like, you're so annoying. How did you know that? <laughs> like she knows how I think. So she was like, I see where this is going immediately. <laughs> and I was like, ah, damn it. So I hope this is not the case with other readers. So a lot of the structure is intuitive for me, but it's also a lot of work just to make sure that it feels right. That's mm. how I'm able to kind of gauge things. It's like I read it over and I'm like, oh, this feels off. And this is also why I would be terrible at teaching craft 
because I'm like, how does it feel to you? Like emotionally, does it feel like the story has a knot in it? Because then you can untangle the knot and that's not helpful to a lot of people as far as practical writing advice. It's interesting. You mentioned that your writing was partly around keeping a secret from the reader, which is a big, big part of this book in terms of what happens in it and the plot and the ways in which people are related to each other because often what is central is secrets secrets that are being kept on behalf of other people in order to protect certain people in order to allow certain people to live the way that they want to live so it's really interesting to hear you say that you are also sort of keeping a secret in the writing of this book Yeah, I pulled that technique from one of my favorite Toni Morrison books, Love, Mm -hmm. which is not an incredibly Mm -hmm. popular book of hers, but I adore it because it keeps so many secrets from the reader. And I enjoyed the (laughs) opacity of that book. And it takes so long for things to kind of click together, but it's so satisfying in the end when, like, in the last third of her book, I think, is when all of a sudden you can see all these secret relationships between people and they're exposed and it's like a domino effect because then all the dominoes move backwards in the book and so many things suddenly make sense. And so that's where I was like, ah, this is what it's like to write while keeping a secret from the reader. And I was a bit satisfied with this book because it's not just keeping a secret from the reader, but it's managing to keep a secret when you've already told them that the main character is dead (laughs) and being in that space of, okay, you know what's going to happen, but do you know enough about what's going to happen? And are you curious enough to read through say an entire book to find out what happens at the end, even though you kind of know it from the beginning? So on the subject of secrets, I want to go back a little bit to what you had mentioned earlier, which is that you were also writing about your community and the community that you grew up in in Nigeria, a group that plays a big role in this book, the Niger Wives, as you mentioned, who are real. Could you talk a little bit about this community? Because one of the things that also, I come from a similar kind of community where there are no secrets almost among even distant relatives, <laughs> right? <laughs> that like right. everybody's business is your business. And I think that's a little bit foreign to Americans where I think the nuclear family is much more emphasized. Mm-hmm. But just to give readers an idea of the community in which this takes place and the difficulty of keeping secrets within a community like this, and sometimes the necessity of doing that, just to give them a sense of the social context that this book exists in. Yeah, so... A lot of my experience with the Niger Wives was when I was much younger, as Mm -hmm. the kids kind of became teenagers and a lot of us went to boarding school. We didn't spend as much time with each other as we used to. But I interviewed my mom for this book, just for Mm -hmm. her to tell me stories of, you know, the other Niger Wives that she was in community with during this time. And it sounded really lonely, like the necessity of having to form that community. Like it sounded like individually there was a lot of loneliness for the women and the community alleviated that because Mm -hmm. it really is an immigrant community. You know, you have these women who have 
left their families in all these various countries and come to live in Nigeria. And it's not that easy to be able to travel back because it's very expensive. You know, I can count on one hand a number of times my mother was able to take us to see her family in Malaysia because mm. especially when you've got multiple kids and now you're talking about very expensive plane tickets <laughs> to fly from one side of the world to another. And I was really glad that they had that community, but there was also so much that they held for each other in terms of secrets. Like they weren't about to tell their children exactly how isolating it could be to be that far away from home. Some of the stories that I put in the book were stories that my mother had told me about, you know, one of the Niger wives whose husband had confiscated her passport to make sure that she couldn't leave. And there were all these little dark stories that I think our mothers had kept from us because I think that's what mothers do, <laughs> you know? Well, some of them. Yeah is to try and protect. It depends, yeah. It depends. It depends on the mom. It depends on the mom. Really, really are comfortable allowing their kids to learn about their problems. Um, yeah, that makes sense. The other thing, you know, that struck me is that there's all these different cultures among the Niger wives. They do come from all these different countries. There's all these different cultures. And that is coupled with all of the different cultures within Nigeria, which is, there's not one homogenized language in Nigeria. And so all of that is kind of coming together in this book to create the cultural sense in which Vivek grows up. Yeah. And I think that was something about my childhood that I enjoyed greatly and that I think people who are outside of perhaps this world or people who have a more one-dimensional idea of what it is to grow up, you know, in Africa, Um, (laughs) like it's not something they think about and I got far more cultural exposure during my childhood than I did you know my first couple of years in the states and I love that richness of culture you know Mm -hmm. it shows up in so many aspects of my life and so many aspects of my like lived experience like when I first came to the States. One of the things I had the hardest time with is that y'all eat pancakes with syrup and like waffles with syrup. (laughs) That is a uniquely American thing. (laughs) Yeah. And I did not, I did not understand it at all because I grew up with an auntie who was from Austria and she taught me how to make waffles from scratch. And we always ate them with like granulated sugar. Mm -hmm. So to me, waffles was something that like you ate with crunch. And then I came to the States and everyone was making their stuff soggy and then putting butter on it. And until today, I cannot. I'm just like, please just pass me some sugar so I can put some granulated stuff on on this because I just do not understand. It's a waffle. This is how you eat it. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Akweke Emeze, author of The Death of Vivek Oji. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. (music) 
We have Amina Tussaud on the line with us today. Amina's new book is called Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. It's co-written with Anne Friedman. And Amina's on the line to give us a book recommendation. Amina, what book are you going to recommend? I am going to recommend a novel called Evening by Nessa Rappaport. Hmm, Okay, tell us about it. It is the story of two sisters who are very competitive. It is a story of uh, deeply fucked up family secrets. If you like fucked up family secrets, this is a book for you. This Um, is everyone. Oh, I'm telling you now. The book is organized by day as this family sits Shiva, and it is just really spare and beautiful and goes really, really, really deep into this sister dynamic. I think that so many of us are fascinated by and Nessa is just a wonderful wonderful writer and it was such a treat to read this book interesting I know you have siblings did you recognize any of your sibling relationship in the book is there competitiveness there I did not recognize my sibling relationship I have a sister who is a lovely human being who I grew up not especially close to And Mm -hmm. as adults, we are learning to be siblings. And it's been really fun learning to be siblings and friends. And, you know, reading books like this for me is the reason it's my catnip is because I'm like, oh, this is what people who are super involved with their families, this is what happens. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm like the the path, the path not taken. So uh, I, yeah, obsessed, obsessed with family secrets. Me too. As an only child, I feel like sibling relationships are particularly a mystery to me because it's like these people can fight with each other and it's not a huge deal and that's completely foreign. And so it sounds great, maybe for all kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely a book for people who um, like to read about, you know, like love, ambition, siblings, or if you want to read about how your past can continue to haunt you well into the future. Yeah, this is a book for you. It's great. Sounds good. And if you don't know what Sitting Shiva is, you know, Google it. Amina, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The novel is called Evening and it is by Nessa Rappaport. Thank you so much. We've been talking to Amina Tussaud. Her new book is called Big Friendship. Thanks, Amina. Thank you so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Akweke Amezi, author of The Death of Vivek Ochi. You know, one of the things, Akweke, that I find actually interesting in this way is that on the one hand, the community of the Niger wives and their children is incredibly diverse, right? In all the ways that we've been talking about, there's so much difference. And yet, difference specifically kind of gender variance or sexual difference is a point of foundational, right? Like fundamental tension in that community. Can you talk a little bit, I guess, just because so much of the novel is about queerness, right? It's not just Vivek's kind of uh, returns from boarding school, correct? Um, And it has longer hair and starts to present in gender nonconforming ways. And that becomes a kind of crisis moment for the family, And then also you have these other queer relationships 
happening amongst the the friend group. But these are the th- the kinds of difference that can't really be enunciated. So can you just talk about how gender and sexuality as a variety of difference kind of operates within that community? Of course. So in The Death of Vivek Aji, I wanted to talk about deviance a lot mm-hmm. because there is a, there's a distinction between deviance and difference. So even though you know you have all these women from different parts of the world with different cultures, it's not considered deviant, especially because you know this is set in Nigeria, and there is fetishization. Fetishization—that's a very clumsy word. What's another word I can use? Because I don't think I can. No, fetishization sounds right. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it just has so many letters in it Uh, (laughs) there is a fetishization of other of foreigners you know because it's about proximity to whiteness Mm -hmm. like if you have you know women who are from southeast asia women who are from the states from all these different places and some and a lot of these women are white then like the ones from Russia and the UK and all of that, we're talking about proximity to whiteness, right? So it's different, but it's not deviant. And when you reach like gender and sexuality and gender expression, and now we're talking about stuff that's deviant, you know, now it's like, oh, you're not assimilating into what we would like this community to look like, which is like, you know, if people think you're a man, you're supposed to quote unquote dress like a man and move like one and all these really oppressive boxes that we've decided that people should live in. And when you don't do that, like Vivek, then you are punished for being deviant because it's not necessarily even about like who you are. It's about whether you're expressing it. There's this thing of like, again, of secrets where, you know, if you're queer and no one can tell, then it's fine. Because Osita, for example, is queer as well. He doesn't face any of the stress from the family that Vivek does because it's not something that he is public with. He keeps it hidden and tucked away. And that's part of the violence, right, against queer people is that, oh, if you don't want to be punished for being deviant, then you bury it and you bury it inside and you never let it out and you conform, conform, conform. And that is what will keep you safe. If you don't conform like Vivek, then there are consequences to that. Just to follow up on that, one of the things that I found quite interesting in the book is that there's there's only one character who is really Vivek's aunt, right? So Osita's mother, mm-hmm. who... It kind of takes the the traditional kind of legacies of colonialism, Christian kind of anti kind of homophobia or um, anti kind of gender nonconforming position, right? That that seems most legible. I'm I'm actually quite interested in the ways in which Vivek's parents, right? So Chica and Kavita, both there doesn't seem to be that kind of judgment, right? It's primarily a fear about their child being hurt by other people, right? As I mean, maybe with Chica, it's a little bit different, but um, can you talk about that? That there doesn't seem to be 
the same kind of, let's say, like moral judgment. It's more a safety and security issue. Yeah, I wanted to show a range of how, you know, the older generation reacted to Vivek because it's not just his parents, you know, it's also his friends' parents. He spends a lot of time in right, other people's right. houses and not everyone is flagging how he expresses himself as a problem. What True. his parents are concerned about is his health because he is really, he's undergoing a bunch of spiritual issues related to reincarnation, um, but he's not right. eating. He's <laughs> which, like, which if we revealed would give away, I think, a, a, a very interesting twist in the novel. <laughs> but, it, but it is pertinent because like just the spiritual aspect of what Vivek is going through is pertinent because there's, it's easy to confuse, you know, his blackouts and his fugues, which start very early in the book. Mm-hmm. It's easy to think that they have something to do with his gender or sexual identity. They don't. These are a separate spiritual thing. And what's been a bit frustrating for me is that I didn't think I had to clarify that so much until when the book started you know, coming out a bit more. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to clarify this because for I think people who are kind of on the outside, I usually write my books for the communities that I'm a part of, and Mm. it's instantly legible to us. But then from a slightly more outside point of view, there are these assumptions that kick in where people think, well, oh, you know, if he's a young person who's queer and suffering, he's suffering because he's queer. And I'm like, no, who decided that? (laughs) You know, he's suffering from these blackouts and these fugues and a lot of like emotional unrest that is very heavily due to these spiritual things that he's dealing with. It's something that I was interested in writing about again after Freshwater was, okay, we're talking about Igbo spirituality. We're talking about the ways in which, you know, we've lost some connection to that in a contemporary culture, what does it look like if that disconnect between... Wait, is it okay if we talk about reincarnation or is that too spoilery? No, no. I feel no, that, I, I, I was because, just, maybe I was being too like hesitant. But you're yeah, you're no, protecting I mean, our readers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that's okay because there are, there are pretty clear... Hints. Know, gestures, hints, yeah, whatever, whatever. I, I, I was not particularly, I can't say I was, I don't know if I was meant to be surprised, but I was not particularly surprised to have that connection sort of made explicit at the end. But so I think we can absolutely talk about it. Okay, cool. So with this book, I wanted to kind of look at Igbo spirituality again and look at reincarnation names in our culture because they are extremely common but people don't often talk about them as being reincarnation names. So mm. some names mm. are Nenna, for example, which means my father's mother, or Namdi, which means my father is alive. And there's a whole slew of names like this. Nowadays, when people name their kids that, they just kind of say like, oh, you know, it's in honor of the grandfather. Mm-hmm. But I had been talking to a friend a couple of years ago who was telling me a story about how 
he was born with the same scar on his knee that his grandfather had. And his grandmother had not been told that his mom was going into labor, but she called them as soon as he was born from a completely different town. And she said, my husband has returned. Please make sure you name him properly. And I thought that was fascinating because this is someone who's, I think, a little younger than me. So this isn't like a couple of generations back. This is recent. Mm. And so I wanted to use that scar imagery because it's so like strong and visual. And with this book, ask the question, you know, what does it look like if a reincarnation happens in a family, but they don't give the child the proper reincarnation name? because they've assumed the child's gender. Because mm. usually the reincarnation names go along gender. Like, okay, you would give a girl the name of my father's mother, but if your child was assumed to be a boy, you wouldn't assume that the reincarnation happened like across gender, I guess. Um, right. And to push back against that, like in this book, and just be like, what if, you know, what if, you got the gender of your child wrong. <laughs> what if you didn't give your child the correct name and there are spiritual repercussions for that? Your child is having flashbacks to a life that's not even his. What would that look like? These blackouts, these fugues. At the same time, your child is coming of age and exploring you know, gender expression and fashion and figuring out what you know, they want to look like. And it was important to me that we, in this book, that each step was normalized. Like Vivek is Vivek at every stage, no matter what he's wearing, no matter what pronoun he's using, he's still the same person. He's not living a more inauthentic life before. And then all of a sudden he starts dressing a different way and now he's authentic. He was authentic the whole time. He's Mm -hmm. true to himself the whole time. I, want to, I wanted to kind of ask, what does it look like to give young queer people the space to be themselves without making the truth of who they are dependent on how legible they are to the, you know, quote unquote, mainstream or to outsiders? So Vivek is doing a lot of things with his gender, but also he's doing a lot of things with his spiritual identity. You also dealt with Igbo um, spirituality in Freshwater. How did you come to these to these belief systems? Were they introduced by your parents? No, I'm I'm Igbo, so. Oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Makes sense. But you are, but your mother is Tamil, is that right? Yes, my mother is Tamil. My grandparents are from emigrated to Malaysia from Sri Lanka, but I was born and raised in Nigeria in Igbo land. So okay. that's the. Um, that's the culture that I was yeah. raised in. It's very, like now, that community is very Christian, more so than these indigenous spiritual beliefs. So the indigenous beliefs themselves weren't necessarily something that were a primary part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. We all knew about them just because it's part of our culture. So it's everywhere in our stories. It's just everywhere. And then I decided to delve a little bit deeper into it with fresh water by pulling that spirituality into a contemporary context. You know, the other literary example we have for Igbo spirituality is 
Achebe's Things Fall Apart, for example, which is yeah. has a lot about that, but it's set back in the day. And I was like, well, what does this look like now? What does it look like if we still use that lens, that original lens that we had before we were colonized and apply it to a contemporary context? One kind of, I guess, as we wrap up, I, I wanted to, I'm not exactly sure how to, how to frame this, but the, the kind of huge cultural moment, which is not obviously just this moment, but I'm, I'm noticing it more now, of kind of um, Nigerian culture on like the global scale. Like certainly there've been so many, you know, yours included uh, works of literature coming out of Nigeria. There's the whole Nollywood thing, right? For, for listeners who don't know, that's the kind of Nigerian film industry uh, with huge kind of international success with films such as From Lagos with Love or The Wedding Party. There's also, I was just recently watching yesterday, Yvonne Orji, who is, uh, plays Molly on Insecure, her HBO comedy special, Mama, I Made It. You know, can you talk about kind of this general kind of flowering, I guess, of Nigerian arts, culture, and literature at this moment? Like what that, you know, means to you or how you experience or encounter that? <laughs> oh, this is the entirely, it's a dangerous question to ask a Nigerian because <laughs> we are so loud in the best ways. So this isn't by any means a new thing at all. Like right. even, even in, in whichever field, you know, whether it's in art or in music or in literature, Nigerians have just been always very present in that. I think statistically, some of it is a population thing. Mm. We are the largest Black nation in the world. <laughs> like okay. We have the largest population of Black people in the world. Uh, Brazil comes second. but And I think on the continent, Nigeria accounts for a quarter of everybody. So there's just wow. a lot of oh, us. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of us. Um, but they're all... This is something that has been, like, culturally, we've been a very impactful force. Like, I'm thinking about Festac 77, you know, which was a major international, like, festival of Black and African arts and culture. And this happened in 1977, like, in Nigeria, in Lagos. So we've, that's... I have so many friends who I'm just like, I'm, I can hear them yelling at me in the back of my head because they, they would be like, this example and that example. I'm just like, but we're just Nigerian. We're just everywhere all the time. Um, <laughs> and I think it's, it's always fun to see when, you know, there's a, a new generation kind of like pushing it forward. Like now there's a younger generation of Nigerian writers, queer writers, which is amazing to see. And every time there's kind of like a fresh wave, it like catches a few more people and people are like, oh, y'all, y'all do a lot of stuff. And I'm like, oh, yes, yes, we do. <laughs> we've been doing this for quite a while now. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a quick, what was, what is your relationship to Nigeria now? Do you, how often do you visit? Um, I haven't been back in a couple of years. My, a lot of my family still lives there. Like my dad lives there. My sister lives in Lagos. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've been busy with book stuff, quite honestly. Like, I really <laughs> wanted to tour 
like this year, but then, you know, a pandemic happened (laughs) and that just kind of kicked everything out of the window. But book stuff has been keeping me really busy because I've been doing literally a book a year since 2018. And also there's been a concern about, for me, about increased visibility as somebody who is deviant Mm. and whether it would be safe to go back home. It's not something that I feel comfortable doing alone at all. Like my sister's there and that's like helpful, but I would still want to be able to travel with a little more of my community around me just to buffer because I am quite visibly deviant and, you know, social media just kind of spreads everything. My dad does not have the internet, thank, thank goodness. Like he does not go <laughs> on social media. So I've just been able to, to just while out without any repercussions from him. So if I dread the day when he discovers Instagram, because then I will be truly fucked. <laughs> oh, I think if he hasn't discovered it yet, I think you're, I think you're, you're all right. safe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to when I can, go back again and not just to Nigeria but like do a proper like tour and hit Accra and Nairobi and Mm. Johannesburg and and now who knows when that'll be at the rates you know everything is going yeah but doesn't that sound wonderful thank you so much Okweke for joining us and for talking about your new book thank you it's a pleasure to share launch day with you guys (laughs) (laughs) big big congratulations yes for sure We've been talking to Akweke Amezi. Their new novel is called The Death of Vivek Oji. Thank you, Akweke. Thank you. We've been speaking with Akweke Amezi, author of The Death of Vivek Oji. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. <laughs> <laughs>